Let's teach this afternoon about fellowship in prayer. Fellowship in prayer. Matthew 17, the first eight verses. And after six days, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brings them up into a high mountain apart. And was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. I don't think anyone will dispute the importance of companionship or partnership in prayer. It is good to have someone close to you or someone with whom you're related you can talk to about different things that you're passing through. Throughout the full gospel movement, there have always been prayer bands and gatherings of intercessors, people that took time to pray. I've been in meetings where churches have had people who didn't even come to the regular service. They just stayed in a back room and prayed the entire service, just asking God to minister in the meeting reach young people, to fill people with the Holy Spirit, and even to heal. So there have always been gatherings of prayer, prayer bands, and people to talk with God. And miraculous things do occur when two or more people are united in prayer. Now this is what Jesus said. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there in the midst. If two or three would touch and agree, he said, shall be done for them on planet Earth just like it is in heaven. So it's important that when we talk about fellowship and prayer, you want to at least have somebody that agrees with you on the outcome you desire. How can it be agreement if you're in disagreement? In fact, the scripture says, can two walk together except they're in agreement? Well, it's impossible. They'll walk together, but they won't get along as they're walking together. So the idea of Christians having people in their lives to pray with them, especially when they have significant needs, that's important. I heard once of some parents who had raised their children in church. And when the one boy got to teenage years, he was tired of all this church stuff. He didn't want to go. He didn't want to have nothing to do with God. He didn't believe in any of it anyhow, what he said. And so he had determined... When he got of age, he's going to just get up and leave the house, and that's what he did. But prior to leaving the house, he, he had some words with his mom and dad, and he got some things off of his chest that he felt like he wanted to say, and he wasn't so respectful when he said them. And that's how the mom and dad and the son parted. And he left, and for at least a year, no one heard from him. He didn't write. He didn't call. He didn't send a note. So you can imagine how distraught the mom and dad were, no matter how much they disagreed and didn't get along. The mom and dad still ache for their parent, I mean, for their child, you know. 
And of course, they were praying and praying and praying and had the church people praying. And over and over again, they prayed, but still no answer. And the mother and father decided one more time, let's just grab the pastor. Let's just agree in prayer and believe God for a miracle. And so they did. They got down there and they prayed and they said, Lord, we're asking you to minister to our son wherever he is. We have no idea where he is, but Lord, please have him contact us or something. Well, within a few days, they had received a call from the son. Well, here's what happened. When the son left the house a year prior, he went to a town a great distance from the house lied about his name, lied about his age, and took a job working for a farmer. And he just started off with a brand new life. Hundreds of prayers went up for that young man during that year that he was out there working. But that, that day that the mother and father united in prayer again with the pastor, that very night, Jesus appeared to that young man in a dream and said, all your sins are forgiven. Go back home. Contact your mom and your dad. Well, he woke up and he was under great conviction, went to the farmer that he was working for, explained to him about what happened in his life and how he got there and how he had misled him about his identity. And the farmer said, it sounds to me like you need to go home and, and reconcile with your family. And that's what he did. He went back home, fell into his mom and dad's arms, and everybody just wept and cried as restoration occurred. But the, the thing I want to emphasize is that mom and dad were in unity and they got a preacher that was in unity with them and they didn't just pray one time, they kept praying and believing God. And you need fellowship in prayer. People to trust God and believe God with you. And we know that Jesus prayed alone. Gospel of Mark chapter 1 verse 35 says he rose up a great while before day and he went out to a place all by himself and prayed. Gospel of Luke chapter 9 verse 18 says while he was praying in a certain place alone. So Jesus did have a private prayer life and you should have one. Prayer is not something that we just have to do as a fellowship and in a community. It's a very private thing. In the midst of prayer you unburden your heart. You say things to God that you may not say in my presence but that doesn't matter to me nor should it matter to you that I do the same with God. Because there's no sense in me putting on airs in the presence of God. Anyhow, he knows what I am. He knows who I am. He sees my weaknesses. He sees every flaw, every blemish. He does not, he's not, he doesn't fall for that stuff when I try to make him believe I'm greater than I am. He sees it. But you should have a private prayer life. But even though Jesus did pray alone, this did not deter him from teaching the disciples how to pray. We all know the Lord's Prayer, or the Disciples' Prayer, however you want to call it. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and so on and so on. But that prayer teaches us a lot of things. It's a model of how to address God. It starts off by telling us that we're to pray our Father. That's simply because God is the Father of all of us that follow him. It doesn't just belong to you, it doesn't just belong to me, but the fatherhood is significant because it's a title we only give to people that we consider our father. We're his children. And when you pray, you don't pray to some stranger. You don't pray to a God that you don't know. We have all the info right here that we need to have about our God. And when you speak to him, you address him as your father. 
That's how much he loves you. And we're not praying to a God of the mountains and a God of the hills and a God that lives in a valley or in a rock or in a tree. Our God resides in heaven. The Bible says he dwells in our hearts by faith. He is so holy that his name has been hallowed or sanctified. That means that we don't take the name of the Lord in vain. We do not use the name of God as a substitute word for a cuss word. It's a holy name. We mention the name of Jesus. We mention the word God when it is in connection with what we expect God to do for us or we testify. Not frivolous speech, but how we address God is important. So the Lord taught them how to pray, but he also taught them to pray one for another. Now let's look at some of these. You go to Ephesians chapter 1 in Ephesians chapter 1, you can read one of Paul's prayers with me. Looking at verse 15. After I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, I don't cease to give thanks for you making mention of you in my prayers. Now here's the prayer. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. One, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Two, that you may know what is the hope and calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. See, and just goes on and on and on with a number of things that you can pray for people. I can give you even another one. Look at chapter three in Ephesians and look at verse 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would, one, grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. Two, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Three, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints, and so on and so on. So you can see that Paul taught the believers also how to pray and what to say. Go a couple of books over and go to Philippians. Go to the next book there, Philippians, and, and go to chapter 1. Look at verses 8 through 11. God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness. Here is how we pray for one another. We pray that God calls us to grow in love. The world hates mean-spirited people. The Lord's not too pleased with them evil, I mean, uh, either, but, but I can say that what, uh, what people call mean-spirited differs according to how they define the terms. If you preach Christ and you preach Jesus is the only way to heaven. If you preach against sin and for the cross of Christ, there's a good chance somebody may call you mean-spirited. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a person who is evil and a person who displays hatred. But Paul says in verse 10 of Philippians 1 that our prayers that you would approve things that are excellent. That means that you will be discerning. You need to know the difference between what's right and what's wrong behavior. We need to know the difference between what is correct and what is incorrect so that the fruits of righteousness would be manifested in our lives. That's how you should pray for me. And that's how I pray for you, that the righteousness of Christ will be manifested. 
not just that good things would happen, but that part of the good things that happen would be the righteousness of the Lord. So in order for us to have righteousness, we certainly have to have a right standing with God. And since we're planted in the Lord, that is going to produce fruit. So the prayer is being filled with fruits of righteousness. Okay, so the disciples gathered with Jesus on the top of this mountain and they prayed just like he prayed in Gethsemane. They prayed for one another. They prayed with one another throughout the book of Acts. We read to you in Acts 4, they prayed and the place was shaken. So there's some lessons we can learn. First of all, it takes a disciplined mind to pray. There are a lot of people who do not have prayer lives because they're not disciplined at all. The same way it takes a united heart to be together in matrimony. It takes a disciplined mind to unite with God in prayer. The moment you begin to decide you're going to talk to God, it's at that point I'm telling you, you start thinking about your grocery list and the devil will be talking to you about kids, grandkids, your neighbors, there's some child kicking a ball across the fence and it's irritating you. All of that is coming in as you're trying to pray and you have to discipline yourselves. Otherwise, you'll be like Peter, James, and John who went to sleep during the prayer meeting. Went to sleep. So Luke 9.32 tells us of the heaviness of sleep that came and you have to resist that urge. Now, many, many years ago, many, many years ago, maybe more than 10 years ago, and I don't, I, don't think, uh, I don't think Mr. Felk would mind me telling this. But Mark, he came to me. He said, Pastor, I want to pray with you. He said, I know you go over to the church and pray, and I just want to spend some time in prayer with you. So I said, okay. So we met over here, and as is my habit, I just stretched out here on my belly right here on the floor. And he was right over there, and he was praying. And of course, in a prayer meeting, I don't, I don't usually, it's not one person prays and everybody listens. I just go to talking to God. That's a private thing for me. So I'm, I'm talking to God. And I started in, and I started praying for the nations. And I've got a lot of countries up here, a lot of cities in my mind. So I just started going one by one by one by one, just going right down the line. After about 25 minutes or so, me just praying, Suddenly, in the background, I hear the sound of somebody snoring. So I lift my head, see, what in the world is going on? And, and Mark is gone. I mean, I'm over here in the world of intercession. He's over here in a land of relaxation. He is gone. But, but when we finally finished, after about an hour and 15 minutes or so, he said, I had no idea anybody could pray for that many countries. Well, you know, in order to pray for someone, you've got to have some idea of their needs. You can't pray for people you don't know exist. If you've never heard of the folks that live in the mountains of Baluchistan, how in the world could you ever pray for them people over there in the Pakistani region? If you've never thought about the folks that live over there near the Tibetans, how in the world are you going to pray for them? But as God brings things to your attention, it's at that point you can discipline yourself to pray. And I've always tried to pray for other people's prayer requests the way I'd want them to pray for mine. Just as important to me. So in Luke chapter 22, there's the story of Jesus going to the Garden of Gethsemane as he's making his, his march to Calvary. He's got Peter, James, and John and the disciples with him. And that spirit of sleep came on them there also. Amazing. Jesus told the disciples, we're going to pray. 
He said, all of you stay right here. Peter, James, and John, you come with me. He went a little bit further. He told James and John and Peter, said, you stay right here. I'm just going just out of earshot, and I'm going to pray. And that's what he did. He walked, as the Bible says, about a stone's throw away, I'm sure within a distance where they could still see him, and he knelt down to pray. And no sooner had he got started praying, the three disciples over here, the three amigos, they went straight to sleep. Jesus gets up, comes back over to where they is. He said, look, stay awake, lest you enter into a time of temptation. Don't go to sleep. They said, fine, we're okay, we're good. Wipe the sleep out of our eyes. Jesus went right back over there, and I'm telling you, that same heaviness came on them again, and they went straight to sleep. And Jesus, it says in Luke 22, an angel from heaven came and strengthened him. And then he went back and he woke him up, and by the time they woke up, the crowd was there to come grab Jesus. The thing that breaks my heart about that isn't that uh, people do that. It could have just as well been me. I don't know what kind of day they had early. It could have been a tiresome one. They could have walked 30 miles. I don't know. They probably were tired. But here's the thing. They slept through the move of God. They slept through the presence of the angel that came and ministered strength to Jesus. And five people can be in the midst of something God is doing, and two people will be asleep even though their eyes are wide open, and they never even see what it is that God is doing. Yeah, what God's doing. The moment you decide to set apart some time, set, a, set yourself apart for God, that is when the devil attacks. It seems like the moment you say, Lord, I want to put my life on track, and I want to start walking with you, then there's an attack in your body, attack in your mind, attack in your family. But don't let that deter you. Get on the right track. Walk with God and stay where you need to be. Satan doesn't want you to pray through and reach Jesus because he knows if you really pray through that that cloud of glory might appear and God could very well speak to you supernaturally. It's an amazing thing. Now the story I told you earlier about the couple praying for their son, they weren't ministers. They were people that go to church and go home every day just like we do. They were people that love God. But there are preachers who have had some significant experiences in prayer. Dr. Lake, after he was filled with the Holy Spirit, it said that, that God spoke to his heart and told him to go to Indianapolis, rent a large hall, hold a gospel campaign there in the wintertime, and prepare to go to Africa in the spring. Mr. Lake was a millionaire. He sold all of his belongings, dispensed with every dollar, that he had to be a faith evangelist. He was a man with millions of dollars. He could have easily funded his own movement. He didn't do it. He got rid of every dollar, started from zero, and said, I'm going to prove that God will supply my need. He rented the hall, started preaching the gospel. People listened to what he said. Lives were changed. Man, it showed up one night, and he came and he saw that banner up there in the back of the hall that said, in Jesus' name, they'll cast out devils. He went to Dr. Lake. He said, Dr. Lake, do you really believe that? He said, as far as I know, in the depths of my soul, I do believe that. He said, well, I've got a brother that's in the insane asylum. Said two years ago, he was in a church, went down to the altar, praying that God would touch him. Somehow in that altar, in that church, he lost his mind and has been insane ever since then. He don't talk to anybody. He's in a straight jacket and he's crazy. Said, well, uh, go, and he said, let's pray, let's believe that the attendants at the asylum will let the man come. Well, they prayed, the attendants let him come. Sure enough, one of them came, as well as the brother and the mother came. They came to the meeting. While Dr. Lake was preaching, he saw the gentleman being brought in. 
He stopped the meeting, brought him down, laid hands on him, had him in that altar, prayed for him, commanded that demon spirit to leave him. Man that hadn't spoken in two years lifted up his head, looked at him, and, and gave an intelligent response as questions were asked to him. He then sat down on that front row. Well, from there, Dr. Lake, from that meeting, Dr. Lake, let him, uh, the Lord let Dr. Lake know you're going to Africa. Dr. Lake didn't have any money. And his partner in these gospel campaigns said, how much money do you think it would take for us to go to Africa? He said, $2,000. Folks, we're talking 108 years ago. $2,000 went a long way, way back then. But they got on their knees together, and Dr. Lake listened as his partner in prayer led the petition to God, and Dr. Lake quietly just assented and just said amen. But before they got to the end, his prayer partner said, I believe God just spoke to my heart, said we don't have to worry about that $2,000. Four days later, four $500 draft. $500 bills were drafted and sent to him. They had the $2,000. Now they've got to get from America all the way to South Africa, and they've got to take a ship. Well, think about this. He didn't have any money. There was nine people in his family. He, his wife, and seven children on a ship that's going to Liverpool from Liverpool to South Africa. His partner had four people in it. He had no idea how he was going to get in the country because you had to have at least $125 on your possession for them to let you in so that you weren't, wouldn't be indigent. He said while he was standing in line, somebody walked up to him in South Africa and handed him that money on the ship so he'd have the money when he got off the boat. He said when he got off the boat, he had already been praying with his wife. They were in agreement. We have to have a place to live. We don't know anybody here. We don't have an apartment. We don't have a cottage or anything. They had no sooner disembarked and come down the gangplane. Here's a lady standing down there looking for Americans and asking, where are the Americans? They said, they're over there. And so asked Brother Lake's prayer partner, how many people are in your family? He said, four. She said, you're not the family. Is there anybody else that's a missionary with you? Said them over there. Went over there and said, Sir, how many people are there in your family? Said nine. Wife and I, seven children. She said, You're the one. Several nights ago, the Lord appeared to me and told me that there'd be a missionary couple coming from America, and I'm to furnish you a house while you're here in South Africa. Think about that. That's what God will do. People began to pray. It's a supernatural thing. So the first thing we learn is it takes a disciplined mind to pray. It's easy to act as if you're your own God. You can do it for yourself, so why talk to God about it? You feel like you're big enough and you're man enough and woman enough on your own to handle all of your problems, but I'm telling you, your shoulders may be strong and sturdy, but they're not big enough to handle all the problems that the devil and this world and the flesh can bring to you. You have to be able to go to somebody that's bigger and stronger than you are. So corporate prayer... Secondly, provides moments of inspiration and faith. It's always good to have a friend with you when you're going through a trial. And this is why Jesus said, if you're going to go out and witness, go two by two. Now, years ago when we went out and we were, when we first came to town, some of you remember we went house to house. We were out there knocking on doors and telling folks we were here and, and trying to spread the gospel. You know, it's a lot easier to do that when you've got another group of people that you can see on the other side of the road or somebody walking with you than it is for you to just go out there on your own and just go to knocking on people's doors. Because there's something about relationship and conversation 
that builds you up when you're passing through a difficult time. If you've got a problem, if you have somebody in whom you can confide, somebody that you can talk to who will not treat you any differently, you will find that it's easier to pass through that valley of the shadow of death. Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16 were preaching the gospel. They were apprehended because they were teaching custom that the other people didn't like. And so it says that they were apprehended. They took their robes, stripped them off their back, and then those Roman soldiers then beat them till their backs began to bleed, laying stripes on them. When it's all over, Paul and Silas were placed in stocks. That means these things that hold your wrists and sometimes hold your, your ankles. And they were placed in the jails. And it was while they were in there long about midnight, while they're bruised and they're swelling that's built up on that back. And they wept and cried and there's a lot of pain. And they're in that unair conditioned place that they said, let's begin to sing. I don't know if it was Paul and Silas that had the idea of started singing first. I can tell you one thing, even if you don't sound good, it does help when you've got somebody else to help you praise God in the midst of your problem. Because sometimes your circumstances can be so bad that they weigh on you so much that the sound of another voice will push back all that despair and all that depression so that you'll be able to sing and praise God with a smile on your face. Whenever people pass through trials together, bonds develop and relationships are made stronger, even secure. You see it in married couples. They pass through a tough time. Hard times come, may even be financial. Maybe somebody's got to work a second, third job. But if everybody's got good character, they continue that so that everything stays together and it doesn't fall apart. They realize this is what we have to do to get ahead. This is what we have to do to take care of the kids. I've seen so many people get married. They have a little bit more money by the time the baby child comes than when the first child came along because they were starting off in life. But financial hardships can be difficult for some, but for others it produces people that grow stronger together. Same thing in sickness. We take our vows. For better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness, and in health. There's not a person in here that got married believing for poor, believing for sickness, believing for all those things. But these are natural things that take place in this world. And when they happen, it is so much better when you've got somebody on your side that you can talk to. It'll be there. Causes that relationship to grow into places where it had not grown before. Many men have seen their wives weep at the sound of some attack of a disease that came about. There are a whole lot of women who, I mean, got men that are very proud. They've never seen them shed a tear. But the moment they hear that word that there's something about terminal that's coming and all of a sudden a man, I mean, that life comes into perspective and sometimes there's a weeping that takes place. I know that when I, a few years ago, when I had that, that massive a blood clot in this body, and I was up there at NHI, and they told me that I've got to go into surgery. Well, I'd heard enough stories about folks going into surgery that their people went in and didn't come out. So I wasn't happy about that. John reading Psalm 103 the whole time, and my wife's in there praying and believing God. But when my wife and I had a, a private moment 
We were both believing I'm going in that hospital and I'm coming out, but I'm telling there's always a thought in the back of that mind. What if I don't see this girl again? I better say everything I need to say and I want to say before I go down there. And I'm crying and she's crying and all of that. But when we pass through it all, we're stronger. You see, we're stronger. Not weaker, but stronger. Because when you pass through trials, if you have somebody there that's with you, you'll find out if you're in agreement about faith and about the outcome, it just makes it that much easier to pass through. So the growth that occurs in that regard is the same as what happens in a local church when persecution breaks out and when a church passes through a lot of different challenges as a congregation. There may be people that slander you or someone else throughout the community. And the church rallies behind you and says, we don't believe that. That's not true at all. It makes that congregation stronger as they stand together. They beat the disciples in Acts chapter 4 and said, you're not to preach in Jesus' name. But once the disciples left the place where they had been confined, when they were released from the authorities, they went right back to the disciples and gathered with them. Acts 4.23 says they went to their own company. Several things here are important. Number one, they knew where the believers were. And number two, they went to folks that believed like them. You need to have a family, a church family, Christian family. There's no believers in the New Testament that were disconnected from a church. All of them were plugged in somewhere. They had a pastor. They had a shepherd. All sheep are in need of that. So once a person comes to know Jesus Christ, at that point, they should be plugged in. But at the same time, why in the world plug into a fellowship that doesn't believe in miracles? Why be attached to something that doesn't believe in God? Doesn't believe in the power of God? Why listen to a man or woman teach that the days of miracles are over and then they say, come on, let's open the service with a word of prayer or let's close the service with a word of prayer. What's the prayer for? if God doesn't intervene anymore. See, The whole point of the prayer is to ask God to do for us something we're unable to do for ourselves. So if we just give a little thought to this, we can see that the chances are greater that supernatural things will occur amid people who believe in God for supernatural things, then it will occur amid people who say God doesn't do that today. So the man or woman with blind eyes or deaf ears, if they sit and spend the rest of their life hearing that God doesn't heal the sick, the possibility and the chances decline that they could ever hear or see. But somebody comes along and says to them, I realize that even though you've got this heart trouble and this leukemia is in your blood and this cancer will destroy your life, if you can find somebody that believes God, the chances are greater now because they're looking to Calvary. They've got people that are helping them see with his stripes we are made whole. It begins there. It begins there. And if it doesn't begin there, it ought to end there. That, that's, that's how this thing is supposed to work. So throughout the week, you may have trials and tests, but amid the saints of God, there's a spirit of prayer which leads each person to know that the Lord is greater than your trial. So prayer is made accordingly. There's never been anything that occurred in my life that Jesus wasn't bigger than. And there's nothing taking place in your life right now that's bigger than your God. 
The scripture says in Mark 11, speak to the mountain. Tell the mountain to go away. The only people that will speak to a mountain and tell the mountain to move are people that believe their God is big enough to lift the thing up and move it. But the moment your God, your mountain is so big that it obscures the presence of your God, you'll stop talking about your God and talking about your mountain. Because you're tired of climbing it. So the only thing that comes out of your mouth is your mountain. And every other week, every other month, every other year, you got a new mountain. Bible says we go from faith to faith, glory to glory. That means from one challenge to another challenge. In between faith to faith, there's unbelief, there's doubt, there's anxiety. From glory to glory, there's flesh and all these other things. But to get from here to there, you've got to defeat all of these other ones. All of the siblings of unbelief have to be defeated in order for you to go from faith to faith. It's a task. But God is in us. And the scripture says greater is he. That's within us than he that's in the world. So fellowship is powerful. There's never been a time that I've gathered with you except afterwards I felt that God is bigger than anything I'm passing through. That's so important. There's a sense of God that exists among the saints that is absent from secular places. That means when I go up and I gather with the good folks at a rotary, or if I'm up at the high school doing something in the classroom with the kids, there's a, there's a presence there that's different than the presence that's here right now in this sanctuary because of the Spirit of God. And when several saints gather together who are of the same mind, even a secular place can become a mountain of transfiguration. Nothing in the Bible says the mountain Jesus and his disciples were on was a holy place. But the moment they climbed up there and started praying and Jesus was transfigured, that became a holy place. You have a totally different feeling in Las Vegas in a casino than you'd have being in here right now. Because the Spirit of God is here in the midst of us and in our hearts. But you go to a casino, it's a totally different deal. And so it's the same right here. Wherever two or three are gathered, we can expect God to show up because of our activities. We worship Him. We praise Him. We glorify him. We make God bigger. When the Bible talks about magnifying God, to magnify means to make bigger. See, to make bigger. Magnify the name of God. Make it bigger than the name of your problem. Magnify the presence of God. Allow God to be God in the midst of your life rather than allowing everything else to be bigger. So this afternoon we want to pray. We want to anoint you good folks with all we want to ask the Lord to heal and to bless and to minister and all the wonderful things that the Lord has begun. We just believe that the Lord is going to continue. Can you say amen? He's a great God, folks. He's a great God. So Loretta and Tina, come on down. Come on down. We're going to lay hands on you down here. Pray for you.